Thank you so much for this time that we have had to just lift up your name. And um, it's true, we never will know the cost, how much it cost you to send your son. But we're so, so grateful. Can't wait for that day when we, when the, uh, we really be able to, we'll be able to see completely the whole picture of what has happened in order to bring us just to salvation. So we're so grateful, Father. So as we look in your word this morning, God, lead us and guide us. Um, may your spirit lead the words that I say, what we hear. Uh, really help us to see how you want us to be changed because of your word this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you didn't know it, and if you didn't know it, especially if you didn't know on the way in here, by the way, it's Palm Sunday, if you couldn't tell. <laughs> thank you. Oh, Donald's not here. If you had a chance to thank Donald for the palm fronds, I guess they call it, that'd be, he just, he got here early and put all those up. So it's really, it's really great. So today is Palm Sunday. And really, it's a day, what, if you don't know what Palm Sunday is really about, Palm Sunday is, it's really about the day that we celebrate Jesus's triumphal entry into to Jerusalem. It's when he came in and it was one week prior to his crucifixion. And really what it marks, it marks what is commonly called Holy Week. So what's coming up now is Holy Week. It's a, which, it's a week that really is marked by uh, the last few days of Jesus' earthly ministry. And every single gospel records a bit of, uh, uh, talks about uh, Palm Sunday a little bit. I would encourage you, Matthew, I think 21 or 25, somewhere in there, starts talking about the, the triumphal entry. Then you get, kind of get to see the incredible things that Christ did at that time. Uh, he really kind of went, amped up his game a little bit, if we want to say that. That did the whole cleansing of the temple and all sorts of things that his ministry included. But on that first Palm Sunday, the crowds really believed, believing that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was going to set up this new reign, this new kingdom. What they did is they, they put their cloaks on the ground and we call it Palm Sundays. They cut these palm fronds and they put them on the ground and they, and they waved them and they did it all really in a sign of recognizing that he's here, the king. He is here, our Messiah. And what they were doing is that signified royalty, putting things on the ground like, but he's the king, he's, he is royalty, we're going to show him. But the problem that happened during that time is these people didn't real, under, realize or understand that Jesus was going to set his kingdom up in a way that they did not anticipate, that they did not expect at all. Really, instead of overthrowing the Roman government like they thought was going to happen, as we already know now, he was going to do it. He was going to set up by his kingdom by sacrificing himself, by being tortured and murdered. That's how he was going to set up his kingdom. Now, it's interesting to note that many of these people, probably most of the people that were out there singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, who, he who comes in the name of the Lord, where yes, he's here, is here. Really, many, if not most of these same people were the people that were doing what a week later? Crucify him, exactly. These are the same people. And what this, tell, what this tells us is that people can be very fickle when it comes to Jesus. On one hand, people, we all like, people like and accept the whole idea that, that Jesus is about love and Jesus is about his acceptance and he's about forgiveness. People love that part. Yet the, on the other hand, people find it really easy to reject his demand for a, a selfless life, for a life of self-sacrifice or self-denial or complete obedience. We don't like that a lot of times. That's not a message that people enjoy. Now, in light of this, though, in light of all of this, can you keep your baby quiet, please? In the light... <laughs> 
it is so good to have the expanded Page family here, by the way. <laughs> Cry away. Believe me, it's totally, completely fine. Uh, so in the light of all this that we just talked about, besides that last part, in the light of what we just talked about, what we're going to do in our, as we continue in our study of the gospel of, of Matthew, we're going to be looking at a passage of scripture where Jesus speaks really some extremely pointed words, both to those people that reject him and to the people that accept who he is. And really the result of either one of these choices that we're going to see really has life-altering results. For one, it's catastrophic. It is completely catastrophic. But for the other, it's the opportunity to literally experience the kind of rest, rest that goes deep down to our soul. Okay, rest from the weariness and the fatigue that often results from the concerns and the hardships and the burdens of this life. You know, this is something we all long for. I know I do to just be at rest. Yeah, I I really believe that even as followers of Jesus, those that are followers of Jesus, this is something that we're going to talk about that even we fail to experience this rest, what it truly means to rest. So in today's passage, Jesus is going to show us how to rest. So last week, last week we saw that Jesus rebuked the people, remember, for not having an accurate expectation of who he was, remember, and how we saw that that leads to doubt and to disappointment. Well, now he proceeds to explain the catastrophic, like I told you at the beginning here, the catastrophic results that come from rejecting him. So he's going to go to them first. So we're going to talk about that first. So we're going to look at a large chunk of, sec- of Scripture here. We're going to look at all that you see on the screen first. It says, verses 20 to 24 in chapter 11 of Matthew. Follow along with me. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Cherison. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So we've seen here that Jesus is denouncing or he's condemning those cities that despite all that they saw, despite that they witnessed the most of his miraculous works of healing and of deliverance, they have hardened themselves against this message that he has. Remember the message of the kingdom of heaven, the good news of the kingdom now, it's interesting that, as we've already seen, initially, these towns were excited to have Jesus there, weren't they? Remember, we talked about the crowds. People were following everywhere. Remember, he couldn't even get into places sometimes. It would, they, he was super popular. Jesus, as they would say today, he's, he was trending big time. He was the man. Everybody wanted to be around Jesus. There were always crowds wherever he went. But now... He's rebuking them because although he was super popular, he was trending, everything was all about him, they refused to respond to his message and to his miracles, like he says here, with repentance. They didn't repent. 
And remember, we talked about this a few months ago. Repentance, what it, repentance literally means is to undergo a change of your frame of mind about how you view God and yourself. It's like you're going one way about how I view God and myself and my sin and making an absolute turn and saying, I'm going this way. Phrase, we, um, uh, well, we looked at this last time. John Piper looked at this a few months ago where he says repentance is like this. He says, repentance is turning away from any and all reliance upon what I am by birth or what I have done by my own effort and turning to the absolutely free mercy of God for the hope of salvation. That's a great that's a great definition of what repentance is. Now we're going to now look at Matthew um, 20 in verses 21 to 22. Jesus actually now goes on to mention these cities by name. It's not enough that he's going to say, "Hey, there's a bunch of you out there that didn't repent." Now he's going to go for the jugular. Okay? He's going to go right start mentioning them names. He says, "Woe Woe to you, Chorazin, or Chorazin, however you're pronouncing it. And woe to you, Bethsaida. What he's saying here, woe is, really, this is literally a curse he's pronouncing. He's basically, what it literally means is, alas, or how dreadful for you guys. This is bad news, okay? This is bad news for these towns. And Jesus goes on to explain how bad it is. He doesn't even stop there. He doesn't say, woe to you, you're a curse, this is not good. He says, let me tell you how bad it is. It is really bad. He says, so Jesus, what he does, he, he compares their fate to two cities, Tyre and Sidon. Now, both Tyre and Sidon are cities that were actually, in the Old Testament, they were targets of prophetic denunciation and judgment by the, in the Old Testament. They were looked at as not good. They actually, if you, talk, if you go into the history of these towns, they were really the ultimate in cruelty and arrogant opposition to God and his people. That's who they were. So he's, he's comparing them to them. Okay? Yet, ironically, what he's saying is the fate of Tyre and Sidon is favorable compared to these two cities. Okay? It seems that even, even they, these two towns, would be more likely to repent than Chorazin and Bethsaida, given the same evidence. If Jesus, what he's saying is, if I would have been there, if I would have done what I did in their town that I did in yours, you know what? I know they would have repented. That's how bad you are. That's how bad this situation is. Now, in verse 23, he goes on to mention another town. He brings another one, the city of Capernaum. And we talked about this one a couple weeks ago. That Really, this was Jesus' hometown. This is kind of where he had kind of set up his base of operations. And the people there definitely witnessed more and the greater amount of uh, great works than any other town. This was like where he did his most stuff. Yet they too... nature. But they, these, what, he's, what he's saying is, even these towns that experienced the most, they too, they, they didn't repent at all either. And he says that they reject, because of they reject him, their condemnation is even greater. This was my hometown. This is where I did the most. This was my outpost. You saw me do everything. So you know what? It's really bad for you guys. And he tells them, instead of being able to rely on their reputation, as you know, would put a billboard up, home of the Messiah, you know, <laughs> home base of the Messiah. Instead of being able to rely on that kind of thing, 
what he says, that's, that is not going to happen. He says, he tells them, you're not going to be famous. You're not going to be looked at great. You're going to go to Hades. Ouch. Go to Hades, which really, this is a reference to the place of the dead. It's like this temporary, I don't quite all totally understand it, but it's like a temporary destination of people that are doomed. What it's basically saying, it's symbolizing that these guys are going to experience utter destruction in every way. And Jesus goes on to tell them why. He doesn't just throw this stuff out. He tells them why. Because they're so condemned is, is that the mighty works that they had done in their city, if they had been done in Sodom, <laughs> now he's really pushing it. If they had been in Sodom, a city that really epitomized depraved wickedness, if it would have been done there, Sodom, get this, he even says it right here, they'd still be around. The city of Sodom would still exist today if they would have seen what you guys saw. Wow. This is some condemnation. He's calling it like it is. So the most evil city in the ancient world is compared favorably with the fate of a town that's been the recipients of most of Jesus' ministry. Wow. No pulling back at all. This must have rocked his. Could you imagine the people that are hearing this in the crowd? They must have just been stunned to hear what he was saying about them. And why? Why is he being so harsh, though? Come on. Why so harsh, Jesus? Why so intense about people not accepting you? It's not like they committed some notorious crime or atrocity like genocide or ethnic cleansing or some evil practice. They hadn't done that. They hadn't done anything. What was their crime that deserved such harsh condemnation? Disbelief disbelief was their crime. Now, I know, here's the thing. When we think about uh, disbelief, we don't think that as being at the top of the list of the world's worst sins, do we? And we don't, when, if we're to list the sins, the, big, the biggies, I don't think we would put disbelief up there, or most people wouldn't put disbelief up there. Usually, the way it goes is murder, adultery, uh, maybe stealing, uh, parking in a handicap zone without a placard, uh, eating trans fats, you know, then, okay, that's the, that's the list. That's, that's how it goes. But no, disbelief in Jesus? Wow. That's not even on most people's list. If you were to tell people, go name the big ones, people would not put that at the list. Yet Jesus, it's on his list. And where is it? It's number one by far the worst heinous sin, the worst kind of evil in the world, according to Jesus here, is disbelief in him. Just wrap your head around that for a minute. That's a wild thought, isn't it? Because we like to put people in, or evil or different things in categories, don't we? Because it feels comfortable. Put that one in a category. That's hard. We go, they've got the murderers over here. We've got the bad people over here. The people that don't believe. Ooh, I didn't think. We just don't think that way. But this is what Jesus is saying here. That's how big it is. You see, Jesus is denouncing these cities because all of them, all the places that he did all this, they witnessed by far the most, yet they still did not believe. 
They came out in droves. They, no, they wanted to see, heal that guy. I want to see that. I want to see that hand come out. They wanted to see all that stuff. He performed things, but they did not respond to his message. So what does that mean for us today? Where do we, how do we put that in a category for today? I think one way that can help, that it can, we can relate to this, is that it's kind of like people that go to church. People that go to church, they sit under the teaching of the word. Maybe they go every once in a while, but they still go to church. They've heard it, or they feel like they, they really kind of know. I, I kind of understand this Jesus thing. Yet there's absolutely zero impact on their lives. Think about how many times we've sat, or you might have been in your life at this time, where people have sat day and week after week after week under the teaching of God's word, and there's been no change whatsoever. That's how we can relate this. Great service. That was awesome. Good message, Pastor. That was great. Oh, the worship. Thank Chris, that was awesome. We're going to miss you. How are we going to survive without you? You know, all this is, this is going to be great. Then they leave, zero life change. None whatsoever. This is what Jesus is talking about. It's kind of also like, I guess one other way you could uh, kind of see this is kid, people that grow up in a Christian home. Say you grow up in a Christian home with really positive, biblical examples of Christianity. Yet when this person gets older, they decide to reject the truth of the gospel. That's no small thing. All I can say is if that's where you're at or you know people like that, just be careful. It is no small thing to know so much and choose not to believe. That's what he's saying here. It's no small thing. We, for crying out loud, we live in America. Who doesn't know about God these days? I mean, a lot of people don't know the truth about Jesus, but I'm telling you, people that do know about Jesus, he's saying, be careful. Be careful not to respond to that because it is huge. Many of us are familiar with the quote that says, with great power comes great responsibility. You ever heard that quote before? Really, you can, it's attributed to the French philosopher Voltaire or Uncle Ben to Peter Parker in the movie Spider-Man. You, you can take your pick. With great power comes great responsibility. Well, I believe that what Jesus is saying here is that with great revelation comes great accountability. With great revelation comes great accountability. We talked about this a couple weeks. Remember I said how fat we get spiritually? We just know so much stuff. Well, Jesus is basically saying here, you know all this stuff? Prove it. Not by, you, not by trying to perform for me, but let it change you. Let those truths, those hard truths, those wonderful truths change your life. That's why Christianity so often is just so watered down. I think especially in our country so often. It's because people know a lot about Jesus, know a lot about God, but it has absolutely zero impact on their life. That's how important this is to Jesus. So, the Bible speaks of this day of judgment. You'll see that on, there, on that last verse where it talks about judgment. When everybody will stand before God and give an account for what they've done. And really the deciding factor for everybody's eternal state will really be determined by what they chose to believe about Jesus and what they chose to do. Everything you look at in, the, in, like in Revelation, you'll look at the, how people will be judged. It always says by what they have done. Doesn't say what the hell they believed, it say what they've done. Because what have you done with what you know? That's where the judgment comes in. 
What have you done with what you know? Thankfully, as followers of Jesus, we know that any shortcoming that we have, Jesus takes care of, but that, that does not mean that we say, I don't have to do anything anymore. No. This is a great example how Jesus has talked to these towns, how important it is that when we read something and we hear something or a spirit of God nudges our hearts, that we do something about it. We follow through. We ask God, how do I apply that to my life? This is a very important issue. So, now, in sharp contrast, we're going to go the other direction. To these sharp contrast to these cities which refuse to respond to Jesus and his message, now what we're going to see is, we have here, is because how we're going to see now about two, well, how we have this faith and how it comes to us and because of how it was revealed to, to us and how we responded in repentance to Jesus, okay? We're going to hear about how it affects us, okay? For those who have faith or people that are still wanting to learn about Jesus, how is it revealed to us and how does this repentance message change us? So let's look at verses 25 to 27. And he says, at that time, Jesus declared, and this is a total turn of direction, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So, Jesus begins these verses with a prayer. Okay? He, start, he just stops what he's doing and he starts to pray. And it's a prayer of thanksgiving to his father. And he's thanking his father for the, the person who has the absolute authority over all creation for how the truth of this message is actually revealed. It's really interesting here. He's going to say, this is what I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for this is how you do it. I'm thankful for this is how people come to know you. Okay? He first says that his message of the kingdom has been hidden Okay, or not yet revealed, not yet known to those who are wise and those who understand. Now, he's not saying that he hides things from people that are really smart. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that even the best human wisdom and insight cannot comprehend divine wisdom. You can't do it. You can't be super smart and finally get it. The message of salvation is hidden, he says, from those who believe that they can figure it out on their own. You see, the truth is that the greatest obstacle to a saving relationship with God of the universe is self-sufficient pride. That's the greatest obstacle. We've, you may, many of you know this verse, Proverbs 3.34. So God, what the proud? He opposes the proud. You don't have to be brilliant to be proud. You can be a complete idiot and be so proud that, no, I don't need that. I've got this figured out. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, by contrast, little children, precisely because they do not rely on their own resources, are open to receiving God's divine revelation concerning Jesus and his message of the kingdom. Spiritually speaking, little children are those who are thoroughly and completely of, aware of their helplessness and absolute dependence on God. Have you ever been there before? 
Have you ever just felt like a child and you're just like, God, I need you. Nothing else is going to work here. Nothing else is going to make this better. I need you. That's what he's saying. He loves to reveal himself to people like that. Now, this contrast between self-reliant and the meek dependence upon God um, is what he's talking about here. And really, it's illustrated. I couldn't think of a great illustration, so I thought, let's go to the Bible here. The difference is really well uh, illustrated in Luke chapter 18. Many of you know this story where it says, 18 verses 10 through 14, it says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. I don't park in handicapped places without my placard or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That really brings it home, doesn't it? really brings it home. You see, God isn't impressed with the super smart or those that feel like they have it all together. Actually, this is often what blinds people to their need of the gospel. Why do you think that Jesus even talks about how hard it is for a rich man to get into heaven? It's easier for what? A camel to get through the end. Now, he's not saying there's anything wrong with being rich. There's nothing wrong with being rich. Nothing. But he's alluding to this whole idea here. It can be a distraction. It can be something to rely on. I rely on my good health. I rely on my abilities. I'm good at my job. I'm darn good at my job. I don't, you know, we would never say, I don't need God to help me with my job. But we sure don't seek him to help us with our job because we got it down. This is what he's talking about. What God is doing, he's looking for people who will humbly confess their unworthiness, emptiness, and helpless dependence on him. Man, this is not the message you see on TV, is it? That's why I've even titled this entire series, we'll be in for 14 years. We have entitled this series, going through Matthew. I've even titled it, The Upside Down Kingdom. Because it is so upside down thinking compared to how the world thinks. Now, we see in verse 26 that in his sovereignty, this is the way God likes to operate. By revealing and hiding, this is what he, why he likes to do it. Commentary, commentary, um, commentator, I'm sorry, R.T. France, I read this week, says, What human wisdom with its self-centered viewpoints finds paradoxical and humiliating is quite simply God's good pleasure. He just loves to do it. The simple truth is that it delights God to reveal himself to those who humbly seek him. Often we think, I got to be strong. I, I can't show the cracks. But God is saying, come to me, man. Just come to me broken. Because when you do, you'll really get it. That's when you'll really understand the kingdom. We fight so hard. I can't be weak. I can't be weak. I don't want people to see my weaknesses or what's wrong with me. Why am I weak? God just says, perfect place to be. Because when you come to me, you'll get it. 
When you come to me, you'll understand how much you need me and how much I can do in your life, in and through you, without your own resources. That's what he's saying here. Now, verse 27, Jesus makes some of the most, really the most powerful claims in the entire Bible about himself. This is what they call the study of Christology. This would be studying about the study of Jesus, who he is. And these are just a couple things. I don't have time to go with them. It's going to mention them that he says about himself. In verse 27, if you, I don't think we have it. Oh, yeah, we do have it. First, he says that the Father has given him authority of all things. Okay? He's given authority, which amounts to Jesus as being fully God. Okay, that's a, huge, that's a huge claim. Next, he says that only he alone knows the Father. What this speaks to is the intimacy that the Father and the Son share. And lastly, and so important for what we're talking about today, he says that no one can know the Father except through knowing the Son. What this means that is since Jesus is the only one who truly, truly understands and knows the Father, he is the only one who can reveal the truth and the knowledge concerning him. He's the only one that can do it. Really, what this is equivalent to is a verse many of us know, John 14, 6. I am the way, where Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and the world hates this. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the one that reveals you to God, not your crystals, not your whatever else you go through, not this other religious mumbo jumbo that you feel you got to go to. It's me. I'm the one that reveals the Father to you. Bottom line is to know God the Father, you must know the Son. And really, this is something that only happens through divine revelation, which that means it's, it's God revealing himself to us through his Son. God revealing himself to us through his Son. Biblical, in biblical literature, when you talk about know, this word to know, it's, more, it's not just to know and acknowledge, it's, it's a relationship to know. Okay, it's not just knowing, it's more than simply an acquisition of knowledge about someone, okay? Like, I know Marsha plays the piano. That's not the know they're talking about here. They're talking about relationally, to have a relationship, okay? And as we've seen, this knowledge is freely given, and that's what he's trying to explain here. It's freely given, not achieved by human effort, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, another familiar verse, for by grace you've been saved, through faith. Why? And is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of your work. So you can't boast about it. There's that wise thing again. Oh, yeah. I came to God. I figured God out. I, I, you know, I was looking for God. I found him. Figured out that I needed Jesus. Well, there's some truth to that. But the reality is, no, he found you. He revealed. Jesus revealed the Father to you. That's how it happened, okay? So you see where this wise thing falls apart? It really falls apart in what Jesus is saying here, okay? So Jesus has thanked his father for how he reveals the way of salvation to anyone, who, anybody who's willing to be humbly accepted, and he's made a powerful claims concerning his role in this whole revelatory process. Here's what he's gonna do now. Now he's going to invite us to experience really the antidote, the antidote for weariness and fatigue 
that we feel, that we often feel as a result of the concerns and the difficulties and the hardships and the burdens of this life. Anybody ever feel fatigued because of those things? Heck yeah, we do. The fatigue, he's going to tell us now how to, what's the antidote for, anecdote for that? And really, this is something that I believe as followers of Jesus, this is something that we have access to, yet I believe that oftentimes, maybe even most of the time, we seem to neglect doing this. I know I do, for sure. What he's going to tell us now is something I truly believe that we really neglect having the mindset of, okay? So put your thinking caps on here. Here we go. Verses 28 to 30. He says this. Very familiar verses once again. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, what we see here is, a Jesus, is an invitation by Jesus, not just to know him like we've been talking about, but to get from him something that every one of us truly longs for, rest. We all long for rest. This word rest here, what it implies is refreshment or replenishing rest. That's what he's talking about here. Now, in this context, this labor and this heavy burden that he's talking about, or this weary feeling that they were having, probably reflected the culture of the unreasonable religious, you know, demands that the religious leaders, because it was a very religious culture, and they were putting these religious demands on the people. It was a burden. It was a heavy burden on them. Things that the religious leaders weren't even willing to do themselves a lot of times. But to bring this really into our context today, what Jesus is doing is Jesus is inviting us to come to him for rest from the heavy laden weariness and that fatigue or burdens that we experience really as a result of just life's complexities and the hardships that we come across in life and really the consequences of sin. Come for rest. But get this, here's the interesting thing he does, he does here. The rest that Jesus gives us actually comes in the form of something that we're actually trying to get rid of. He, we're trying to get rid of this burden. But it actually, the rest comes from a burden, a yoke, what he calls a yoke. He's saying, take this burden, take this yoke upon you. Now, I have a picture of, this is the kind of yoke he's talking about here. A yoke, this is a yoke where a, a person wears really to distribute the weight of a load across their shoulders for the purpose of making it easier to carry that load, okay? So they balance, they balance things out. Jesus invites us to come to him in order to take upon ourselves a yoke. He's not saying, I want to take your yoke away. I want to take a yoke off of you. I want to take this, that, any burden off you. No, he's not saying that. He's saying he's take his yoke because his yoke is easy and the burden or the weight of it is light. Okay? It's light. Jesus says that the answer for the heavy burden is a completely different burden. Here's, what, here's what's happening. What Jesus, and this might paint a picture better for you, what Jesus is essentially offering is a yoke exchange. 
That's what he's offering. He's offering a yoke exchange. Our heavy, burdensome, fatiguing yoke of worrying. Anybody worry in here? <laughs> of being anxious. Anybody ever anxious in here? He's saying, give me that, or trying to earn God's favor by being good or doing good things. Now, that's what I got to do. He's saying, no, I want to exchange that yoke for a yoke that, reflect, that replenishes you and that refreshes our very soul. So often we think that we will find rest, the rest that we need. I don't know about you, but sometimes, okay, that vacation's coming. You know, my wife and I are going on a cruise in a month. I'm thinking, okay. It'd be easy to think, okay, that's when life's going to get really great. We all know what that, we all know the answer to what that is. So often, though, we feel like, you know, so this will all, get, I'll find rest when this darn project gets over with. It's so, ugh, it's draining me. Once I'm done with that, I will find rest. Or when the weekend gets here. Or when retirement gets here. You know, for many people, actually, rest from life's burdens is sought after in drugs, alcohol, food, and sex, or any other way they can think of to anesthetize their pain. Yet the truth is, and we all know this, that all these things are just a temporary escape. We need something better, something that impacts our very soul, not just a nap. We need something that impacts our very soul, something supernatural. I like what one commentator, uh, Frederick Bruner, said that I read this week. He says, Jesus doesn't promise an escape from reality, but he provides the right equipment to deal with it. And this equipment he's talking about is his yoke. And, we, what we're, and, and if you really look at this text, it says what this yoke does, it, it enables us to do when we feel that yoke come on us that he gives us, it's, it's a yoke that enables us to be able to learn something, okay? Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, okay? He's asking us to learn something very, very important here. And look what he says in the first part of verse 29. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me. And says, what Jesus is saying there, he's saying, and I want you, I, I'm putting this up on there for you because what I think this is really the crux of what he's saying. What Jesus is, what taking Jesus's yoke upon ourselves means is purposefully choosing to walk and live in obedience and submission to his word so that we can learn to live under the reign and rule and authority of God in our hearts and lives. Now, not an easy phrase to remember. I just want to say it again, though, because this is what I believe taking the yoke really means. It means taking Jesus' yoke upon ourselves means purposefully choosing to walk, to live in obedience and submission, to walk and to live in obedience and submission to his word so that we can learn to live under the reign and rule and authority of God in our hearts and lives. And not in a way that's burdensome, not in a way that's heavy at all or legalistic or guilt-driven, but by trusting and believing that he, like it says here, is humble and he's gentle. And, he, and, and, and we need to believe things like what Philippians 4.19 says is, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. The truth is that rest for our soul does not 
come from pursuing leisure or avoiding hard things. Let me say that again. Rest for our souls does not come from pursuing leisure or avoiding hard things in life. Rest for our soul. This is it, guys. Rest for our soul comes from pursuing obedience. That's where rest for our soul comes from. It comes from seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's where the rest comes from. So who's ready to change their, exchange burdens? Who's ready to exchange yokes? Your burdensome and fatiguing yoke for the yoke that Jesus offers that is easy to bear and provides rest for our souls. I want to ask you, have you asked, I'm going to put this question. I want you to think about this. Ask yourself this morning, what is an area of my life I struggle to give Jesus complete control and need to learn how to walk in obedience and submission to him? This is a great question that we all need to ask. What is an area of my life that I struggle to give Jesus complete control and need to learn how to walk in obedience and submission to him? We think, oh, obedience, that means a lot of hard work. No, what he's saying here, obedience means freedom. He's saying obedience to him. When you, like you remember, like we talked about earlier, when you hear something in the word, when the Holy Spirit convicts you to do something or not do something, and you do it, that's where freedom is found. That's where the burden is lifted by being obedient to what God wants us to be, live like. That's why we've talked about it. it's so important to be in the word and to be with other believers and to be talking about this stuff because it goes against our nature. What I got to do to get rid of my burden, I got to work harder to get rid of it. Who's not exhausted doing that? I do it all the time. Oh, I'm stressed out about this. I got to work to make it better. No. Obey. What does it mean to obey? Oh, God, I'm nervous about this sermon. I'm nervous that it's not coming together. What do I do? Just be obedient, Rob. Just do work, work, work hard, pray, and let God take care of the rest. Put that in your own situation, wherever you are, at your job, your home, your kids, Anything else, your health? Can you just say, I, I can't fix this. I need, I need the burden that you give. And the burden is I'm just going to be obedient. I'm going to trust. I'm going to pray. I'm going to be accountable. I'm going to be in your word. That's where the light burden comes. And he's asking us to take that burden. He's asking us to take that yoke. But we're also to remember it. it's easy and it's light because he's humble and he's gentle. And he loves you and me more than we could possibly know. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that at times it seems, it does seem harsh. But God, we thank you for the truth that it brings. And I pray for everyone here, including myself, God, that you would help us to go to you and to be willing to take your burden, to exchange that burden for obedience to living as you desire us to live and doing whatever it takes, God, to be obedient. Not because we feel like, oh my gosh, I have to do that now or I feel guilty because I don't. 
I thank you, God, that you give us the strength. You give us the wisdom and how to live out the things that you command us to do. So I pray for all of us this week, God, that we would, as we ask this question of ourselves, what is it? What area in my life do I need to give over to you and be obedient? I pray that you would reveal that to us in your humble and gentle way. and Draw us to yourself. Show us once again how much you love us. In your son's name, amen.